This is Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Conversations about race are happening across the country, which include race relations and the treatment of people of color. Police shootings by race have created movements and spurred communities to have critical talks about race. Where do Native nations, Native organizations, and members of the Native community fit in? Is there a difference between racial equality and racial equity? Racial equity means that I don't have to leave who I am at the door in order to feel like I'm equal. I don't have to become someone I'm not. What is racial equity at school, the workplace, and everyday interactions between different groups? Does Alaska Native culture, tradition, and language play a role? Join us for a conversation about racial equity right after the news. Reporting from the Alaska Federation of Natives Convention in Fairbanks, I'm Zachariah Hughes. Even before the convention's official start, there was some big news. AFN President Julie Kitka told the audience at the Tribal Leaders Conference Wednesday morning that the AFN board has decided to weigh in on the upcoming presidential election. I'm very pleased to uh, convey to you that the AFN board voted to endorse Hillary Clinton. And... um, This this is the first time in AFN's 50-year history that we've ever endorsed a presidential candidate. Kitka says the gesture isn't intended to tell anyone how to vote, but is meant to show leadership at a critical time for politics that directly impact Alaska Native peoples. The three-page resolution lists Clinton's promises and record on issues relevant to indigenous communities. Our number one thing is we don't want to be marginalized. We don't want to be put... Uh, to be a target where all we're doing is raising money for litigation and fighting for our rights. We want to establish our rights and build on them and have a future for our children and grandchildren. The resolution does not mention the name of Clinton's opponent, Republican Donald J. Trump. Kitka says more details will come out during AFN. Though this is the board's first presidential endorsement, in 2014, AFN broke precedent by coming out in support of the Walker-Malott unity ticket, as well as Mark Begich's re-election campaign for U.S. Senate. Though the endorsement is symbolically significant, it's not clear if it'll have much of an impact at the polls. So my name is Megan Topcock. My impact name is Sakhavana. My family's originally from Nome, Alaska, but I'm currently living in Anchorage, finishing up my third year of law school. Topcock was originally a strong Bernie Sanders supporter, but says her mind has been made up for a while to vote for Clinton, partly because of what she sees as a record of supporting indigenous issues. She has a much better developed uh, tribal policy. Um, she's done much better work with tribes around across the state, and you know, she'll carry that commitment to Indian country forward. Um, so it was, it was fairly clear for me, um, as an indigenous person, who I would support in the upcoming presidential election. Topcock thinks that given the combative political climate, the move by the AFN board is opportune, particularly as many people in Alaska look to the body for leadership on political matters. Topcock was speaking on the last day of the 33rd Elders and Youth Conference. The morning began with songs from the Pava Inupiaq dance group from Fairbanks. One departure from past years, Topcock says, was the number of events that featured hands-on activities, like a session on wild berries, native tattooing, and a demonstration by Marjorie Kunak Tabone on how to process a fur seal. Marge doing seal cutting was really awesome just to kind of see someone really demonstrate that, I mean, especially for people who are living 
in urban areas or parts of the state where you don't do as much subsistence hunting or you only get home so often. Uh, so it's been really awesome just kind of applying what we've been learning and seeing the work that people are doing to really revive our culture and our languages is, is really beautiful. It's no coincidence that this year's Elders and Youth was more hands-on. Conferences leaders say putting cultural lessons directly into practice is becoming a central tenet of the annual event. My name is Dewey Kothliya Hoffman, Kothliya Sauza, Tlego Tanislan, Bedzito Tanislan, I'm Koyakon Athabaskan from Ruby. Hoffman says organizers are building more cultural practice into the program itself, even smaller gestures like saying traditional introductions and lessons on preparing foods. The first seal that was processed, for example, was distributed to elders during closing ceremonies, with youth dutifully running between tables to deliver Ziploc bags of meat and yellow jars of seal oil. Hoffman hopes the approach will help young people treat culture and values as something to be applied throughout everyday life. There's a saying that we like to perpetuate, and it originates from Benny Shendo down in the Zuni Pueblo who once said, don't teach me about my culture, use my culture to teach me. The Elders and Youth Conference passed five resolutions concerned with substance abuse, advancing racial equity, and returning remains from a former boarding school in Pennsylvania. Reporting from Elders and Youth, I'm Zachariah Hughes. The AFN Newscast is a production of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation and Native Voice One. Funding provided by the Siri Foundation, Chalista Corporation, the Atwood Foundation, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, ConocoPhillips, Manilak Association, Rasmussen Foundation, and South Central Foundation. This is a production of KNBA, Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Alaska's Native Voice. From the Carlson Center in Fairbanks, I'm Antonia Gonzalez. There's work being done here in the state to intentionally reshape the dialogue on racism to raise awareness about healing and seek solutions towards racial equity, which includes examining policy. And joining me today to talk about this is uh, Andrea Sanders and Darlene Trick, and they're going to talk about a statewide project here that uh, is by the Alaska Native Policy Center um, at First Alaskans Institute. Welcome to the program today. Thank you. And please introduce yourself, Darlene, to our audience. Yes, of course. Uh, my name is Darlene Buckleup-Trigg. I'm Inipak. I was born and raised in Nome, Alaska. Uh, my family comes from Wales, Chishmarath, and Little Diomede, and I currently live in Anchorage, working at First Alaskans Institute as their social justice manager. And Andrea, please introduce yourself. My name is Andrea Agatlak Sanders, and my family comes from Quinnahawk along the Kanehduk River. I was born and raised in Mamtreshak in Bethel, and I have the honor of working as the director of the Alaska Native Policy Center uh, with Darlene. Great. Well, tell us a little bit about the Racial Equity Project. Yeah, so First Alaskans Institute has been engaged in a racial equity project since 2010. Uh, the first iteration of our project um, was calling Alaska Native Dialogues on Racial Equity, or affectionately Andor or Andore. Um, we started this project thinking about how we were going to start having conversations about race in our state in a good, healthy way, not in response to some negative interaction that occurred that often um, creates more tension amongst people. So having meaningful conversations, healing conversations about race, 
in neutral settings and thinking about how we can advance policy solutions. We're now in our second iteration of our project, so now we're advancing Native Dialogues on racial equity, and we have focus areas, uh, focus in education, the legal system, and thinking about how we change public perception and awareness around race in our state. And Andrea, why is this important? Yeah, there, I think there are so many reasons, but as um, you know, the first peoples of our land, we often feel um, sometimes subtle, sometimes very overt oppression still today in 2016. We have a very complicated history in Alaska. Um, today at the AFN convention, they're celebrating their 50th anniversary, and we're hearing a lot about the struggles that are what Emil was calling kind of that first generation of folks who fought for native land claims. And then you hear, um, you know, Megan talking about in her opening remarks that today we still are facing racism among, you know, on our own homelands. And we do a lot of work with youth and um, we hear and we see the hard things they have to overcome mm -hmm. in their identity as being Native. You know, depending on if they're in an urban area or a rural area, sometimes it's, it's easier just to pretend you're not Alaska Native if you're growing up in an urban area. And it's, it's, it should not be that way. It does not need to be that way. We have so much to be proud of. We have so much richness in our culture, um, you know, our traditions that we want to start elevating these topics, bringing it to the surface so that, for one, our own people can feel grounded and strong in who they are, but also so that all others who call Alaska home now or who spend time, you know, um, whether it's tourism or military, you know, all those who spend time in our state can really respect us and see the value that we bring, um, not only to Alaska, but I think nationally. Um, it's foundational, you know, feeling strong in who you are. It's really foundational in, in helping you later in life. And so we do a lot of work with youth all over our state, really trying to enhance that connection, that understanding, um, because we know when you're strong in who you are, you're going to live a good life. You're going you're gonna to raise your kids grounded in who they are and have stronger health outcomes, life expectancy, less stress, all of those things. Um, and so it's something that we're really trying to weave within our organization beyond just the policy center, but in everything that we do. We're weaving this topic into all that we do, and you see it now today on, 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 the, on this platform. And as, as Megan said, you know, our work with... Um, school districts. We're trying to create the topic of racial equity, one that doesn't have to happen behind closed doors, but one that can happen openly in a healthy way, in a way that people are seeking to gain more understanding rather than more barriers put up between our different racial groups. And this week, uh, First Alaskans Institute hosted its Elders and Youth Conference, and it was something that was talked about during the, the gathering, which uh, happens right before the Alaska Federation of Natives annual convention. So we got a chance to talk to some people about racial equity and their thoughts on it. Let's hear. My name is Liz Medicine Crow, and I'm the president and CEO of First Alaskans Institute. Equity allows for all of everything that we are, our cultures, our, our ways of being, our rights to hunt, fish, and gather on our lands. Those things are critical. They're not like separate parts of us. They're not pastimes. They're not hobbies. They're actually what maintains our identity and who we are. That's a right that we have. 
all of that diversity, all of that knowledge. Imagine, you know, if you think about Western knowledge, it's usually thought about as this one big contiguous kind of body of knowledge containing Western philosophies and containing Western science and social science and all of those things. Well, if you think about it, for indigenous peoples across the globe and for Alaska Native peoples, each of our nations are distinct nations of people. At least 12, if you think about Alaska Native cultures as being maybe 12 groupings of people, cultural, culturally affiliated groupings of people, they all have their own knowledge systems, their own sciences. So it's not a limitation to racial equity it's actually the biggest strength to it is that diversity. One of the problems we have as human beings though, no matter what racial group you come from, is learning how to work together. And I think that's where things are different now is that people are really starting to wake up to the fact our people are waking up and they're hungry. Our kids are waking up and they're hungry to know who we are. And they're ready and they're capable of carrying us into the future. So racial equity is a way for us to talk about both issues of race, but also helping to highlight and define what our indigenous peoples have termed our political identity, which are two separate things, but many people conflate them. And and they stem from this relationship with the federal government with colonization. So we have two different ways of thinking about our engagement on issues of racial equity as indigenous peoples. So what do you think about what um, Liz, who is who you work with, <laughs> yes. what she had to say about um, racial equity? You know, I really love it when Liz talks about things that she's really passionate about, and I could hear the passion in her voice when she was talking about the difference or what equity really means to her and the value that we have in really um, allowing the diversity of our multiple cultures to come together and you know not create a a situation where it's a third and a third and a third but it's one plus one plus one and we have the opportunity to really create something that um, is really strong uh, when we actually find our place in a situation where we can understand somebody else's perspective in a different way that'll just creates a good space for us to really build that relationship that she was talking about and that's kind of the foundation for some of the work that we do with the Racial Equity Project. Um, Part of, uh, um, you were talking about a healthy conversation, a healthy, building healthy relationships. What does that mean? Yeah, so we, um, we utilize an indigenous hosting process and we call them our agreements. They're really founded on indigenous values that I think are universal in some regard. Um, but it's, you know, in every cheerleader understanding that it's not just the role that you play, the title that you have, but we have lived experiences. Uh, we, ca- we set the tone for how we want people to engage. Uh, we're very clear with the space that we're creating when we host our dialogues. And we ask everyone to uphold these agreements. And when we do that, and we do it with such care and intention, um, it really creates opportunities for people to connect in the heart space. We ask them to move out of their head. Don't think about what you're going to respond with. Don't think about what you're going to argue back. Really listen. When you really listen and try to understand somebody else's perspective, and um, connect with them as a human from the heart we find so much um, so many doors open that way we're, we're, we're finding that you know 
people who are non-native and we ask them to identify uh, their cultural identity, they have to think internally and think back to what it is that they know as you know, non-native people, whether it's you know, Eastern Europe. But even just that process of how we introduce ourselves, it allows people to really feel grounded and remember their ancestry, remember who they are. And from that, that's the place that we start to move forward in asking some of the hard dialogue questions. We spend a lot of time um, really setting a tone and making sure that this is just the beginning. We don't have to stop the conversation after, whether it's a four-hour session or a two-day session. We always let make, make sure our, our participants know this is just the beginning, and we want them to go ahead and carry this conversation on in their family, in their classroom, in their church, wherever it is. But we're, we're um, very intentional about the way that we, we set that tone right from the beginning. And part of it, too, is just how it applies to everyday life and issues and, um, you know, conversations looking at, for example, um, putting, you mentioned language, for example, putting uh, native languages on to when it comes to voting and mm -hmm. why that's important. So our producer, Emily Schwing, um, talked to one person about that. Do you feel like Alaska Native people are included in the discussion about um, you know, racial equity or inequity? Well, I'm, I'm proud here in Alaska. Alaska Natives have been outspoken and have played a crucial role in uh, public policy and discussions. And they haven't sat by the sidelines. They've kind of injected themselves into the discussion. So, Do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm 47. So, okay, you're 47. So you, you've been around for a while. Um, how have you seen things change? Gosh. Well, I, I grew up in Arctic Village, and at that time, everyone, we all spoke our language, and we didn't, you know, believe in being shamed about speaking our language. And pretty outspoken people. But when you come to Fairbanks, it's a different experience, and people just see you as one-dimensional. They don't see the full human, they just see a stereotype. So I'm glad that there are ongoing discussions and people are learning about each other, not just giving in to um, those people or us versus them, that we can understand that there is a lot more to people than just the stereotypes that are out there. Do you think that... Um if you still lived in Arctic Village and you came to Fairbanks and spoke your language now, that it would be better received than it was in the past? Yeah, I think it's... Um, I couldn't have imagined years ago that my language and the other Alaska Native languages would be official languages of Alaska. And that was um, Alan Hayton, who is a Gwich'in uh, speaker, and he helped translate materials um, for the state of Alaska on uh, election ballots. And so why is it important for something like that when it comes to racial equity? Using language, why is using a native language important? Yeah, I think one of the things that um, we know to be true is that our language prim is primarily the foundation for our culture. And I think when I 
look at our organization and how we are actively working to decolonize it, we recognize that using our language is something that really makes us strong and it helps us to understand one another and it helps us to um, engage in a different way. So when I think about Alaska Native culture, uh, excuse me, Alaska Native languages um, being translated into ballots, I think that it allows a person to think and read their ballot in the way that they think, allowing them to process through their decisions in a different way, allowing them to express themselves in a way that's meaningful to them. It recognizes who they are as an individual, allowing them to come into that conversation in a meaningful way. So it's, it's an important thing for us to be able to have our languages uh, on those ballots so that we can really bring our full self into our civic duty of voting. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing. I'm grateful that we were able to get to that place. Do you yeah. have anything to yeah. add? Yeah, I would also add, you know, when when we think about our grandparents' generation and, and what's happened with the boarding school era where they were physically punished and physically harmed for speaking their language, to the place that we are today where our languages are recognized officially by the state and ballots are being translated, I think it speaks volumes to the resiliency that we've had to have. Um, the things that we had to do, um, whether it was kind of underground or, or secretly continuing to speak our languages. Like, I can't even imagine what that was like. I can't imagine what that was like. But I know as a Yupik woman that Yupik is, is a, a beautiful, such a beautiful language. And our, our keynotes, uh, Ralph and Vivian Jimmy, giving their keynote presentation in their Yupik language even though some of the folks in the room may not have understood them, they could feel how important it was. They could feel that moment of um, connection, of humor, of this, this raw truth that they were able to share. And uh, it just speaks volumes today that, that we're at a place where these languages are on an equitable platform with the English language. At the keynote, it was, like you said, even though you didn't speak, you know, you could still understand and get a sense. It was, it was really, it was really powerful, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you know, when we look and talk about race, um, we each have our own experience and some of a, some, sometimes which you're probably in encountering in these dialogues is experiences that are negative that happen to you. Um, based on the way you look or talk or act or um, some, you know, um, we have uh, young men at the at the conference this week that we talked to about just sharing some of their experiences. I'm Isaac Tickner and I'm from Anvik. Um, have you had any personal experiences with um, race discrimination? Yeah, I was... Uh I was getting stuff at the store here in Fairbanks at Fred Morris Bus and I had a couple times I was standing outside for my cab and these, these uh, white people, they drive by and they, man, they just, they just swore and say F the natives and that kind of made me a little mad but I kept my mouth shut because that's their problem. And I don't want it to be mine. But still, we got to stop it. 
but in the world we live in, it seems like there's stuff we can't stop. Um, do you feel like maybe Alaska Native people could be racially profiled? Native Americans have been, we almost been wiped out. I mean, the stories I hear about long ago, how downstates had it, man, they had it worst. More than the black people died. There's millions and millions. Of, just, it's hard to explain. We've been hunted for a long time. And that's bothering me, and that's bothering my friends, family, and who knows who's out there that bothers them. That was a young man sharing his comments about, um, you know, just an experience that he remembers that was hurtful to him. And what do you um, think about what Isaac said? It's that it's their problem, like, you know, being treated like that it wasn't his problem. It was their problem that they had an issue with him just because of his race. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that kind of play out when it comes to the whole race conversation. Um, I think when I kind of hear his story in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to evaluate the situation. Why would a rational, normal human being respond in that way, um, saying those kinds of negative comments to someone they don't know at all? Um, and I think um, about some of the, the um, truths that we know about uh, the flaws in our education system. So, you know, a lot of people look at our Native community and they see that we have in their, what is to their mind these benefits without it actually understanding the complex socioeconomic conditions that created things like um, land claim settlement or the responsibility of the federal government to provide health care to Alaska Natives and American Indians. Um, so I, I think when you don't understand the history around the uh, things that have happened to Native people, um, it really creates a challenging environment for people to kind of get a sense of why we experience the world in the way that we do. Um, and I think um, there are ways to remedy that. So having a true um, history recorded, taught in our education system. You know, if we're able to talk to our eighth grade young people about the Holocaust of world and World War II, there's absolutely no reason why we can't talk about the colonization of our people and the forced assimilation of our people and the impact of the boarding school era on our people um, to help put some context behind some of the things that we're experiencing today, uh, I think that kind of plays into that interaction in itself. You know, the, the young man that was interviewed actually had a sense of the things that he uh, could, it helped him kind of understand what was happening around him. And he understood that it wasn't his issue, but he had a context to base that um, off of and not everybody has that so if you're like me and you didn't learn about the impact of intergenerational trauma historic trauma the impact of intergenerational trauma until your 30s you didn't have an understanding you just wondered why you and I internalized so much of um, what was happening around me as I was less than because I didn't have an understanding of the historical context that got us to this place today and uh, you're listening to Alaska's Native Voice, and today we're talking with some people, some guests from uh, First Alaskans Institute who are working 
on dialogues and healthy dialogues about race and racial equity. And we also have been speaking this week to uh, attendees who are here in Fairbanks, gathered from across the state, from rural and urban areas. Um, we had the first Alaskans Institute's Elders and Youth Conference, which took place this week. So we're hearing some voices from um, their thoughts on our conversation today. And today is the first day of the Alaska Federation of Natives annual convention, where there's thousands of people are also gathered here to talk about some of the top issues and. Some of the attendees on the stage have already been addressing some of this racial equity, um, that conversation we're talking about here. And uh, we are going to uh, take a quick short break in a minute, but uh, we uh, hope that you will continue listening to us and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm your host, Antonia Gonzalez, and we're here at the Carlson Center in Fairbanks, and I have some guests joining me today from First Alaskans Institute, and we're talking about a project that they've been doing on racial equity, and we're talking a little bit about that today, and uh, welcome back. Thanks for joining us, uh, Andrea and Darlene. Thank you for being here. Thank so you. right before the break, um, we were we were uh, hearing from a young man and his experience of being wrongly treated. I could feel that righteous anger that he has for the experience, his lived experience. And I know that there's a lot of healing that needs to come of that experience very specifically. Um, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the work that we get to do with this racial equity project. There is so much opportunity for people's personal stories to rise to the surface so that people who may not have had that same kind of experience can understand someone else's experience. They can understand each other in a different way, creating bridges that may not have been able to exist before. And I'm so grateful for their ability to even speak about their experience. Uh, we have so much to learn from that. I think that's the beautiful thing about our people is, um, you know, we, we, we were successful in this way this one time, and we can use the success of how we moved through um, their trial and and think about how we can expand that i loved that they brought back the rituals of gifting and giving thanks to their community they're they're doing their own work to heal and that's a very powerful thing and for the people who weren't able to go to the potlatch can you explain that what happened with the gifting yeah so it was a really um amazing experience to see um 
them come together. There were so many gifts that were out there in that center space. And really the opportunity for the four to thank the people who worked on their behalf, who held them up, who had their back, who um, didn't ever give up on making sure that they got out. Um, it was an amazing thing to see the hugs, the tears, the care, the love, um, the appreciation that they had for their community. And I wanted to uh, touch a little bit on um, school because you do a lot of work with young people and part of this project is school. So we got a chance to talk to um, an educator, Yvonne Peter, who is a, a known educator in this area. Um, he talked with uh, our producer, Emily Schwing, about his own personal experience with um, discrimination in the education system. Uh, my name is Yvonne Peter. I'm originally from a village called Mashrenko. In English, they call it Arctic Village. I'm Gwich'in and Koyakon. And my current job is I work at the University of Alaska Fairbanks as a vice chancellor for rural community and native education. Uh, well, you know, growing up in, in uh, Mashrenko, it's a majority Gwich'in community. Uh, growing up there was before we had electricity and uh, we still don't have running water up there. Very remote. Uh, uh, tribal nation and and so uh, we really just lived our cultural way of life and uh, I think the only non-Gwich'in people that lived in our village um, numbered less than five <laughs> maybe and uh, they were largely just the teachers that were flown in in, in the schools. so uh, some of the times the experiences that I had um, outside of Ashranko I, I had about I think a year and a half or so of schooling in uh, the low-income communities in the city of Anchorage uh, one of my teachers was uh, uh, really wonderful to everybody and was a, uh, I, I think really embraced the concept of education and, and, and equity and equality. Um, but in the same school when I shifted to another teacher, um, the experience was there was a, a clear discrimination against Alaska Native students um, and particular Alaska Native men um, uh, and a very poor treatment. Just a couple weeks in the class, I stood up and told the teacher, I, I've had enough of this, this is not a good experience for me. And I told her I'm leaving her classroom and I'm never going to come back again. And that's what I did. <laughs> and uh, ended up being um, put into a kind of an experimental school at the time for young students, but it was a really well supported experimental school and just had an incredible educational experience for the rest of that um, semester. And it was the first time that I realized the difference between a school that's well-funded, well-supported, and a school that that was serving low-income students, and and the difference in quality and opportunities that that arise in those different contexts. And that was Yvonne Peter talking a little bit about his own personal experience with the school system. Some of the talks that were that I heard this week at Elders and Youth Conference was about people coming in who are not Alaska Native and coming into the education system. Your thoughts, Darlene? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I had an amazing opportunity to sit with an elder who kind of put it in perspective for me this week. Um, she was talking about the systems that were in play right now and that the systems are designed to perpetuate um, oppression, I guess is the best way to say it. So 
Uh, oftentimes people have loan repayment options that can come into rural schools and stay for two years and have their loans repaid and considering the national landscape um, of uh, education debt that's a significant thing to be able to have your loans repaid and um, you think oh it's Val, Val Davidson on the stage talked about that the significance of that two-year loan repayment system and how it, it, it um, perpetuates oppression because these folks um, as good intention as they are they don't have the ability to um, teach in a way that's relevant um, that it uh, uses our culture to teach us that is place-based um, educational systems so it's very challenging that we are constantly perpetuating that cycle of people who come into the community who don't have a good sense of what it is they're actually coming into and um, using the framework of education that is not the 10,000 year education system that we have used to thrive in these environments um, and teach our children um, in ways that um, are not relevant to who we are. Um, so I think about um, the ways that we can solve that and I think about a uh, project that we're engaged in through our racial equity project. We have an education component, we have a partnership um, with the uh, Alaska Association of School Boards and um, it's culturally responsive education and social emotional learning and making the tie between the two so that we can actually create strong educational systems where community is engaged in teaching culture in the classroom and the recognition that the education system the formal education system that our rural communities have doesn't just happen inside the four walls of that school but that it happens every single day all around them and that the kids um, can benefit from the power dynamics of the school and the community, those power dynamics breaking down and them really partnering to create an education system that's relevant, that has culture in it, that um, has a vision of them succeeding in their own homes. Andrea, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's important for us to always be pushing back on the research and the data. You know, there are all kinds of statistics out there that paint a picture of Alaska Natives and other minority groups as being less than. Within this current construct, um, yes, we have some really big barriers and challenges, but I'm constantly pushing back on the data. I'm, I'm constantly trying to get us to a place where we're thinking thinking at a level that can tap into our collective wisdom as a people. And I think that the current education system, the way that we have these standardized tests, the way that we have people from the outside educating our children when they're becoming aware, when they're coming into awareness, um, it's, it's damaging and it doesn't define us. That's why we spent time, and I'm pleased to hear today at AFN as well, um, talking about transforming our education system we have a lot of passionate, hardworking people right now who want to seek tribal self-determination over our education system because we see how we've transformed our healthcare system. We are very um, capable, we are very sophisticated in our ability to um, work directly with federal government in, in creating really strong foundational um, systems. 
and we know we can do that in education as well. And so we're really pushing the envelope here currently um, because we know through tribal self-determination, we can get it to a place where we're tapping into that collective wisdom and our, um, our success will, will just be limitless. So we wanted to just uh, end the program talking a little bit about the healing aspect of it. I got a chance to uh, talk to Anna Frank, who is a reverend here locally. My name is Anna Frank, Reverend Anna Frank. <laughs> I'm retired. We have to teach our, um, our children and other people how to handle racism. Uh, we can't be angry about it all the time. We have to learn how to handle the issues. I have great-grandchildren right right, walking around in my house, and I have to teach them about that racism and not to be angry about it because we are changing that. We are making a difference when we start speaking up. And I remember when my daughter was going to school and she came home and she said, Mom, what's a savage? And... I explain, try to explain the best that I can, and I said, uh, but you'll have to um, recognize what's going on with you. It's not so much them as how you handle those things, you know, how you, you look at yourself, a and you know you're not like that. You know you're, you're not what they call you, a and we're beginning to prove that. That, and we're standing up for ourselves and say, I don't like it when people talk to me like that. And sometimes you just have to walk away from it because there will always be those, uh, the people that are hurt. To me, people who say things like that are, they're hurting inside too. So they take it out on somebody else. So why is healing important? Well, there is a lot of opportunity for us to create situations where we're where the state can can move together if we're able to heal. And I think um, in our community there's um, still a lack of acknowledgement of the traumatic past that our communities have faced. And I think um, being in a position to think about doing some sort of truth and reconciliation process. Uh, can really advance our communities, um, allowing for some sort of opportunity for people to speak their truth, for the truth to be acknowledged as a part of a healing process is really an important part of um, our ability to move forward. I love that Anna is really focusing in on um, we're living in a different time and you know there's a lot of opportunity for us to do good in that time um, and you know not everybody is in a place where they feel like they've been heard and uh, there's a lot of opportunity for um, the state and others to acknowledge the things that have happened in our communities so that we can move on and start to heal. Andrea? Yeah I think um, the respect that our governor, Governor Walker, shows for Lieutenant Governor Byron Malott, you know, he's constantly holding him as an equal. I think that speaks volumes to where we are as a state. I think symbolically it's, it's a very important place for us to be in. And I think that um, there's still a lot more work to be done, but the willingness, the readiness that we sense everywhere we go, we travel across, you know, each of the regions, the readiness is there. Our people are ready to heal. And I think that as individuals, many of us have and many of us are. 
but it has to be something that I think is bigger than bigger than the sum of you know just us as individuals it has to be that collect like I was talking about that collective and I get the sense that our community is ready and we're doing the best that we can to create the space for that to infuse love every which way we go infusing love into that process infusing understanding appreciation through that healing process because we know we have so much work yet to be done we cannot remain broken our souls can't be broken our identity can't be broken through the through a healing process um, through our songs our dances our rituals um, we're going to come out so much stronger and we're uh, wrapping up here today talking about this issue of racial equity uh, final thoughts so grateful that we've had the opportunity to talk candidly about this. I think that's something that we uh, in our state need to have more of. Um, it, it, this should not be something that we're afraid of talking about. Um, you know, the word race or using the words Alaska Native or white or, or African American, you know, we can't, we can't um, find ourselves in a situation where we can't talk about it. We can do it in a respectful way, but we need to do it. And your final Yeah, thoughts. absolutely. This is really about creating more understanding, building bridges. This None of this work has to do with kind of um, further siloing or further dividing our people. And I think first and foremost, that has to be understood. Um, it's about, you know, people who have multiple backgrounds, multiple racial backgrounds, really feeling strong in that and feeling connected. And I think... Um, with the demographics changing in Alaska and nationally, we're, as people of color, we're going to have to continue to assert ourselves and, and have space at the table and, and growing into those decision-making roles. And I think having conversations about racial equity is really what's going to enable us to do that so we can have equitable systems and policies in the future. Well, thank you for joining us today and talking about this. And if people want some information about the project, where can they find that at? Yeah, so that would be our website at www.firstalaskans.org or on our Facebook page. Uh, we do actively engage with folks on social media um, and also the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. All right, well, that'll do it for us today. Thank you to our guests today, Andrea Sanders and Darlene Trigg um, from the Alaska Native Policy Center at First Alaskans Institute. Um, I'm your host, Antonia Gonzalez, and thank you to our board operator, Lauren Dixon, and producer, Emily Schwing. We have some more shows coming up this week for you, so tune in. Thank you. Alaska's Native Voice, produced and directed by Antonia Gonzalez and Emily Schwing. Funding provided by Chalista Corporation, the Atwood Foundation, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, the Siri Foundation, Manilik Association, ConocoPhillips, Rasmussen Foundation, and South Central Foundation. This has been a production of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.